My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. Hello and welcome What The Finance to another episode of the What The Finance podcast, where we talk to experts to help gain a greater understanding about what is happening in the world of finance, investing and markets. So on today's podcast, I'm happy to welcome Duncan Maven, who's a former journalist for the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones, and is also the author of the recently released book, The Pyramid of Lies, Lex Greensill and the Billion Dollar Scandal. So Duncan, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. So I guess my first question is, what was your influence writing the book? Uh, well, I got involved in this story quite a few years ago, actually. I was kind of, um, uh, I was doing a lot of kind of not journalism stuff at Dow Jones. I was doing a lot of kind of strategy and management. Uh, I had been an accountant before as a journalist. I kind of kept getting dragged back into kind of running the business and things. Um, and, you know, I wanted to keep my eye in on the, on the journalism and a source, a long time source came to me and said, you know, have you, have you heard this company Green Cell Capital? And I said, no, I've never heard of them. And they said, well, you should pay attention. They're they're either going to be, you know, the next big thing or they're going to be a disaster. Um, and here's some documents that you might want to look at. And so I took a look and instantly it was like, obviously there was something wrong with this company. Um, and what made it really interesting was that it had a bunch of kind of high profile names backing it. So you sort of see a bunch of red flags and you see a bunch of high profile names. And as a journalist, you know, your eyes light up. But yeah, that's really interesting. So I guess, can you maybe describe what Greensill did? And I think a key thing that I saw throughout the book was supply chain finance is really their specialty. So I guess, can you maybe explain that and what it is? Yeah. Yeah. So supply chain finance is sort of wrapped up in a whole bunch of jargon, but in truth, it's sort of fairly simple. It's essentially an old, fairly old method of financing It's providing essentially loans to businesses to smooth the transactions between buyers and suppliers of goods and services. So um, typically like a buyer of goods, you know, let's say a, a big factory that wants to buy some parts for its whatever it puts out, it, it, it's going to pay like pay the supplier 90 days or 180 days after it gets the goods. And that sort of, you know, suits the buyer, but it doesn't suit the supplier. And so supply chain finance is essentially kind of where banks typically insert themselves into that and say, well, I'll pay the supplier right up front straight away and I'll, and, and I'll get the money back from the buyer later and I'll take a cut of the deal. Um, and usually it's like some small discount. And that's been going on for decades, if not centuries in one form or another. What what Greensill was doing was saying, well, we can do this more efficiently than the banks. We, we're, we're better than, than the banks at doing this. And also we want to spread this to more clients. The banks only offer it to a limited number of clients. We're going to offer it to everybody. And the way they said they would do this more efficiently was rather than use their own money, because Greensill Capital didn't have any money, uh, they would they would sort of seek out investors. They'd come up with funds that would invest in this kind of transaction. And uh, they'd go to investment uh, managers and say, look, we, we've got this supply chain finance deal. Would you like a piece of that? And you, you'll get a share of, share of the, the profit that we make. Um, so in theory, it was kind of, you know, really pretty straightforward in some ways, just a kind of type of lending. Uh, the reality was that that business is really not very profitable at all. In fact, very, very difficult to make profits. And the bank, the banks who offer it do it usually as a kind of loss leader for their big clients. Um, so Greensill Capital was already in a business that was a, a bit of a struggle. Um, and, and it turned out to be a real struggle for them. 
Yeah, and because that's uh, Lex Greensill, obviously the founder, and you know who, who it's named after. He was, I think, his whole career. He, re- for some reason, he always thought this is the future. This is the future. This is where I'm going to make my money. Because if um, throughout the book you mentioned how I think he went to multiple banks, try and build the, this sort of business within there, and never really worked. And then he decided to go out on his own. Yeah, that's right. So Lex has this. Um, well, first of all, he's an amazing character, really interesting guy. Like he's he's from this small town in uh, in Australia, a place called Bundaberg. In fact, he's kind of from outside Bundaberg and his family have had a farm there for generations, a couple of generations. And he always had this sort of uh, this great backstory that explained why he was in supply chain finance. And it was just such a beautiful story. And, you know, when you heard it, it's like hard not to buy into it. And the idea was when he was a kid growing up, his parents were were farmers and they were producing watermelons and sweet potatoes and selling to, to the big supermarkets in Australia and the supermarkets didn't pay them on time. And that meant that his parents had always struggled, you know, and, and part of it was like he couldn't go to university because they couldn't afford to send him there because they didn't get paid on time. So this had driven Lex to want to fix the supply chains. Um, you know, there's a, there's another version of the story. And, and with Lex Greensell, there's pretty much always another version of the story. But I came across people who who told me a different version, right? So the version I heard was that actually after he left uh, university, after he got his, his degree, he ended up in Sydney working for a guy who was already working on something like this as a, as a sort of moderately successful and moderately well-known Australian businessman who um, had had a business that failed and he felt like it had failed because of supplier payments not being made on time. And so he was working on a supply chain finance business and Lex learned a lot from him. As you say, he then went to work for Morgan Stanley uh, where he kind of tried to, to build up this supply chain finance business there. And, you know, for a fairly junior guy, did incredibly well, was like one of the you know, best paid people there and was a bit of a rising star until it all went wrong. Like around the financial crisis, the business he built up became a bit of a, a bit of a problem for them because uh, the bank no longer wanted to fund this business. And it was sort of stuck with loans, big, really big loans to some high profile uh, names, some high profile clients that of the bank. So he left Morgan Stanley. Then he went to Citigroup, tried to do something similar there, kind of fell out with some people there, and then eventually kind of branched out and did it by himself and used this model where he went to investment managers and said, if you give me the money, I'll do this for you. Um, it was supposed to be the green cell capital business was also supposed to be a very sort of tech heavy business. So he claimed it was a fintech. Um, the reality again is different. There wasn't much tech. They relied a lot on third-party tech providers, um, and fintech was a real stretch. It was really useful in terms of getting a big valuation for the company, but it wasn't really what was happening there. Yeah, when I hear his story, it's almost like he, it seems like he wanted to be like an empire builder. So he's always looking for that next sale, that growth. And then I think at the banks, it sounded like he was being held back almost sometimes because like, hang on, you know, this might not be the best financial thing to do. But Lex was like, no, I just need to continue to grow and sell and get more clients. Yeah, that's a that's a good way of looking at it. He's definitely like a super ambitious salesman. And so in the banks, there are kind of restraints around that, right? And there's, you know, banks are not perfect, but they definitely have compliance and, and, and rules that stop people going too far. And rather than kind of tone down his behavior, Lex almost walks off in a in a strop, you know, and goes to the next place until eventually he's kind of run out of banks and, and does his own thing. Um, but yeah, he he wants to be you know, he wants to kind of be the biggest thing in supply chain finance in the world. He wants to, to, at one point he talks about 
wanting to uh, finance every transaction in the world, uh, which sort of tells you a lot about the level of ambition. You know, people like you and I might laugh at that, but there were enough people who were like, wow, well, I want to get behind this guy. Um, so yeah, it's it's a the ambition is definitely a part of it and, and empire building is absolutely right. Okay. So yeah, so he ends up starting his own company. And then as you said, he sold a lot of people. And I think it was, um, you said he sold a lot of the debt to other investors, but I think as well, he got a lot of people to actually invest capital into Greensill and what it did. So do you think they were mainly investing for, for him as a person? Yeah. So Greensill is, um, yeah, the backing for Greensill is kind of amazing, actually, right? So what one reason he's able to do that is when he was at Morgan Stanley, he had met a guy named Jeremy Haywood, who was a very senior civil servant. And Haywood had worked for Morgan Stanley for a bit, gone back into government. And at the time, the government was looking for, the UK government was looking for ways to uh, be more efficient in the way it paid its own suppliers. And uh, Haywood said, hey, I know this guy. It's uh, this guy Lex Greensell. He's this young, ambitious guy at the, in the banks. And so he'd got access to the UK government. And, and Lex kind of milked that, uh, gave him a lot of credibility. And you know, to the extent that he was able to hire David Cameron, the former UK prime minister, onto his staff. Um, the, the backing he got went, so it was, you know, it was political. He had people like Cameron. Uh, but it was also, yeah, a couple of, of, of giant investors. And uh, one of them was General Atlantic, this big uh, private equity firm, which is renowned for being really credible, actually, and really thorough in its processes. Um, in this case, uh, they did a lot of work around Lex Greensill. And I think what happened was they said, well, you know, this guy is, uh, there are problems with him, but we kind of like supply chain finance. We like fintechs. We think this business could do with a bit more tech and we can help with that. We think Lex could do with, you know, a bit of guidance. And this is what we do. Like, like, this is our business. We take problematic founders who are, you know, visionaries and we we take them to the next level. We show them how to do their job properly. Um, in reality, they couldn't control Lex. In fact, he was, you know, he had the upper hand in that relationship. Um, and the other big backer, and and really, this is where Greensill got sort of supercharged, was um, the SoftBank Vision Fund, which, you know, anybody who's been following kind of tech and investing for the last few years is aware of the Vision Fund and their kind of disruptive approach to investing. You know, this is a hundred, well, Vision Fund One, which is, what invested in Greensill was a hundred billion dollar fund, uh, mostly money from Gulf states and from SoftBank itself, and they put money into Greensill, put a couple of billion dollars effectively in the end into Greensill on the back of a few weeks of due diligence, um, and that's kind of how they approach everything, right? And and they they've had some bets that really have paid off, and they've had some bets that have you know blown up in their faces really badly, like we work. Um, and, you know, I think their view is, well, we've got a hundred billion dollars and we're going to take some bets and some of them aren't going to work and that's okay. The, the problem with that is, you know, that kind of ignores the disruption they're causing along the way. You know, the, there were a thousand employees at Greensill Capital who are out of work and they're investors who've lost money because Greensill grew at this huge rate after SoftBank put its money in. Yeah, unfortunately, it's almost like the kiss of death at the moment. <laughs> Having investment from SoftBank, it seems like uh, a lot of the companies are collapsing. So for, from reading the book, it seems like, you know, Greensill, he goes out on his own. As you said, he raised quite a lot of capital. Um, I think SoftBank and 
a lot of that was a bit later, but then they continued to invest. It seems like from the start, he was probably making some poor decisions and, you know, he wasn't really making much money at all. I'm not sure if you can talk about that. So was it the fact that he, you know, was the wrong management or was it the fact that obviously COVID had a massive impact? What what really happened? Yeah, I think, um, you know, as I said earlier, he uh, he was in a business that effectively wasn't very profitable. And so if you if you kind of look at supply chain finance, you take a little cut of these deals and the banks do it and they take their cut. But for Lex to do it, he has to take a cut. The investors he's promised, you know, some some return to, they've got to take a cut. In many cases, he had to take out trade credit insurance, which is this insurance pays off if the if the loans default. He had to take that out because the investors wanted an added layer of protection. That they they have to get paid. You know, there, there's a whole bunch of people who have to get paid out of this tiny sliver of a return. And so this relatively unprofitable business, um, you know, in some cases is literally loss making. Um, and certainly to do it with big credible names who are you know satisfactory clients that then it then it for, for somebody like Greensell, it was unprofitable at best loss making in many cases and so in order for him to say well look I have a business that's growing uh, invest in me to people like General Atlantic and SoftBank he then has to do something a bit different which is you know really not supply chain finance at all. It's just unsecured lending to a whole bunch of slightly risky or more than slightly risky clients. Um, And he's been doing that, you know, from the start. So some of those were businesses that just couldn't get any kind of uh, financing from anybody else, often quite small businesses. There's quite a lot of them go wrong in, in sort of 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15. A lot of businesses that you invest in that don't work out the way they should have worked out. Um, and so things start to sort of already he's like baking in problems, even as the business appears to be growing. Um, and there's a there's a piece of Lex's personality that really comes into this. So he, you know, never wants to admit that he's wrong. That that's what I found from everybody working around him. And you know, he's incredibly bullish all the time. And so that is appealing to people like SoftBank because they say, well, this guy's a, a founder and a visionary, and you know he's going to shoot for the moon, but it's a real problem when you're talking about a banker. Um, maybe great for a salesman, but terrible for a banker because when loans start to go wrong for Greensill Capital, instead of writing them off or acknowledging that they're not going to be paid back, Lex's first instinct is to double down and offer a new loan to the same person. Say, well, oh, you know, you couldn't pay that 30 million. Don't worry about it. I'll roll it over. I'll give you another loan. We'll extend it. Um, and you know, hope that he never has to acknowledge that things have gone bad. So he's sort of baking in these problems for years and years and years. And that's really sort of the underlying problem with Lex. Now, there are like a couple of triggers that make the whole thing collapse eventually. One of them, the key one, is is the insurance. Um, you know, because he'd had so many of these problems along the way, actually his access to trade credit insurance was was narrowing. There were a lot of a lot of the big trade credit insurers were saying we don't want to work with Green Cell Capital. We're not really sure we trust them. We don't we don't understand what he's doing. Um, we don't you know we're not we're just not comfortable with him. And so he ends up working getting most of his trade credit insurance with this tiny Australian company called the Bond and Credit Company. Um, and you know, at one point I, I, I met Lex many times. And one point I said to him, uh, "Hey, Lex, you know." You've got this multi-billion dollar business. Why is all the trade credit insurance coming from this tiny, like, you know, 
dozen person business in Australia uh, called the Bond and Credit Company. And he, his response was, well, you know, they're Australian and I'm Australian. And I'm like, what? That, that's, that isn't a reason to do billions of dollars of business with somebody, surely. But apparently it was. So what happens, the trigger is that eventually the Bond and Credit Company ends up being owned by Tokyo Marine, which is a massive Japanese company. And they find that they've got this massive exposure to green cell capital. And they say, we're not going to insure this stuff anymore. And so when that gets pulled, the whole thing kind of comes tumbling down. It's like a house of cards that just kind of collapses. Yeah, I think um, at, during that period as well, they buy a bank, don't they? So I guess that was another way because you think about supply chain finance, like how they how are these companies getting other loans? Yeah. It was done through that other bank, which I think was based in Germany. I'm not that's sure. right. So yeah, he buys a, it buys a bank in Germany. Uh, it's a bank that's like 100 years old. It's never really been very successful. Lex buys it for something like $25 million and uses it as a sort of warehousing facility. He actually said to me, I, it's a warehousing facility. So what they did was if the, if the, some of the loans weren't working out, he could just shove them in his bank. And then instead of them being exposed to other investors, they're exposed to the bank, which of course is like exposed to the deposit holders of the bank, which turn out to be a bunch of German municipalities who are not very happy when it turns out, you know, they've loaned money to the worst of green sales clients. Um, and the, the other pool of cash we should say is, uh, is Credit Suisse, right? So the big the big fund that gets involved is is Credit Suisse Asset Management. They they provide their clients money to the tune of about ten billion dollars in the end to invest in green cell loans. Um, and you know they're still looking for a few billion dollars that they haven't got back. What are we like eighteen months since green cell collapsed? It's crazy to think. And I guess, uh, you know, someone who's has been mentioned in the UK news quite a lot about this story as well as in the, in the book is Sanjeev Gupta, uh, who is quite an important person in Greensill and had lots of debt. He owns, it's a very complex web of commodity companies. So would you say he's almost like the perfect example of what a customer for Greensill was? Yeah. So Sanjeev is, you know, in many ways, the biggest, most important client of green cells. There are probably two or three others, but Sanjeev's the best known and uh, the biggest, I think it's fair to say. And, you know, similar guy to Lex in some ways, right? Like very charismatic, uh, very salesy kind of guy. And, but also with a somewhat like mixed reputation. And so as he's, as Sanjeev Gupta was building up his metals conglomerate, um, which is, you know, buying up sort of assets that nobody else wants or can't make them work. Uh, Sanjeev goes around the world buying them up, mostly in the UK, but also in Australia and the States, in Europe. Um, as he goes around doing this, he's struggling for money, struggling to get any traditional bank to give him a loan. Nobody will do it because they don't really understand how he's going to make these businesses work. And so Lex, and he comes across Lex Greensell, and at one point, actually, Sanjeev owns a stake in Greensell Capital um, for a few months. Uh, but they become pretty close. You know, they, they spend time together on Lex's farm and Lex, go, Lex goes to Sanjeev's parties in Sydney. Um, and they become close personally, but professionally, they're like entirely intertwined, right? Greensill is providing all the financing for the deals that Sanjeev is doing. And none of this is supply chain finance, by the way. Like not, none of this is anything like supply chain finance. It's big loans for multi-billion dollar acquisitions, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's straightforward lending. 
um, but to a company that's really risky and can't get lending from anybody else. And so they become really, really sort of intertwined. These loans, by the way, are stuffed into the supply chain finance funds that Credit Suisse is selling to its clients, even though they're nothing like supply chain finance. Um, so they become really, they, they sort of lean on each other, right? Like Sanjeev can't continue to grow his business without loans from Lex. And Lex's business, you know, doesn't really have any uh, big clients, maybe one or two others, other than Sanjeev Gupta, who are going to pay him any sort of revenue. And so the two can't, like, they can't pull away from each other. Um, and and actually at Greensill Capital, it becomes an issue, you know, at, at board meetings, it comes up all the time, what are we going to do about the Gupta businesses? And Lex will sort of, you know, he'll answer honestly about the size of the loans and so on, but he'll always say, oh, don't worry about it, I've got it covered. And, you know, he, this is a real problem with Greensill Capital is uh, the board and the senior management, uh, they're aware of many of the problems, but they don't do anything about it. And they sort of accept it when Lex just sort of says, yeah, don't worry, I've got, I've got this. You, you, guys, you guys deal with all the other stuff. I've got these problems. Well, he didn't. He didn't have them sorted at all. Yeah, they didn't rein him in. So if we look at when, I guess, everything starts to crack and fall apart, um, would you say, you know, I guess 2020, around that period after COVID, would you say that was the big influence? It was COVID and then maybe there was more analysis of actually the risks that were occurring within Greensill or what would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think Lex Greensill himself has said COVID, you know, without COVID, we would have been fine. And I think that's kind of a convenient excuse, really. Um, there had been hiccups all, all the way. Greensill Capital. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that Greensill Capital wouldn't have blown up at some point. Um, however, it does play a bit of a role, right? So certainly the, the start of COVID, if you remember, the markets kind of went crazy and uh, everybody started pulling their money out of anything that wasn't absolutely you know, the safest thing possible. And so those Credit Suisse funds, there's a bit of a run on the Credit Suisse funds because they're offering like a little bit better than money market funds, but for a little bit more risk. And so the money starts to come out of those funds and that starts to expose some of the cracks in the funds. And, you know, I wrote some stories about things that were going on there that now are, you know, were revealed by that. And so did some other people. And the result was that Credit Suisse had an investigation into the funds, which started to make investors a little bit nervous. Um, so that was kind of, you know, COVID having a bit of an impact on, on Greensill. Um, it also obviously had an impact on things like the amount of trade and, and so on. But ultimately, that was kind of passing. The other big impact COVID had was that, you know, uh, Lex, with David Cameron on board, saw an opportunity. And, and I kind of was aware of this straight away. As somebody who'd been covering him for a while, I thought, He's gonna he's gonna spot this a mile off. He's gonna see that there's government money available, and he'll be all over it. And sure enough, he was. And you know, Lex and David Cameron were sort of bombarding Cameron's former colleagues in government with requests for access to COVID bounce back loans and so on. Um, and mostly unsuccessful, I'd say. Like mo most of the time, uh, you know people in Treasury or wherever would turn around and say, or British Business Bank would turn around and say, we don't think you're quite the right fit. But in some cases, they, they were successful, in particular around some of the Sanjeev Gupta loans. So, uh, you know, there were rules around some of these loans that said no particular borrower can have more than £50 million. Um, so what Greensill and, and Gupta did was they applied 
seven different times under seven different Gupta businesses and managed to accumulate you know, hundreds of millions of, dollars, of pounds of loans, um, which, you know, when Greensill collapsed, became the subject of a parliamentary inquiry, which you know, much of it was still going on um, because clearly that was not the intention. Um, so I think COVID, like it had an impact certainly on the business. It started to reveal some of the cracks it led them to do things which got them into even more trouble. Um, but I don't think really you could say COVID was the cause of, of Greensill's demise. I think really what was the cause of Greensill's demise was him doubling down always on bad loans. And then Tokyo Marine taking over this insurance and saying, well, hang on a minute, what are we doing here? You know, it was like a fresh pair of eyes suddenly looking at this business with no real connection to them and not really seeing any upside and say, well, you know, we're out. And at that point, the whole thing collapses. Yeah. So I guess what would you say is the fallout? So obviously, you know, Lex Greensill's lost reputation, David Cameron to an extent as well, Credit Suisse lost chunk of money. (laughs) What else would you say? Well, I think, yeah, it's it's an interesting one because, you know, you hope when these things happen that like people will go, oh, well, let's never do that again. You know, uh, the worry is that, of course, it will all happen again, right? And uh, I think the the fallout is, is 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 problematic from that perspective because you know I think there are probably a bunch of other Lex Green cells out there doing similar things right now. I mean, there there are um, concrete investigations and so on happening, right? So there there have been a couple of parliamentary inquiries into the sort of revolving door between business and government and whether it's okay for former prime ministers to lobby on behalf of uh, businesses they work for. And and there were other people in government who worked for Greensill doing the same. Um, There are uh, investigations, criminal investigations in Switzerland and Germany into Greensill. And uh, there's a SFO securities, um, sorry, serious fraud office investigation in the UK into Sanjeev Gupta and his business with Greensill. So, you know, the, those things are going to take years to play out. That's that's what always seems to happen. And, you know, I think when there's, when those investigations take years to play out, the momentum kind of gets lost, right? And, you know, it's kind of becomes easy to say, well, maybe, you know, it didn't really mean to be that bad. And um, it was just some mistakes they made. So that, you know, the outcome from those things is yet to be seen, I guess. Um, I think there have been some there have been some movements in the kind of supply chain finance business. So people have started to realize that you know it's a, it's actually quite a big business and it probably needs some regulation. There have been some new accounting rules issued uh, in the U.S. I think people will start to look analysts and so on will start to look a bit more closely at some of the supply chain finance stuff that the, the uh, companies have taken out. Um, but I, yeah, I worry that the the, the implications you know won't there, there won't be any big uh concrete effect of this really that you know people like uh, credit suisse who have a really big role to play essentially yeah you know big hit to the bank and you know certainly a couple of executives have gone and the portfolio managers have gone and that kind of thing but the bank will just keep going and and you know it's not really in their interests to speak up and admit what happened because actually that's kind of embarrassing right and this is this is one of the sort of most disappointing things for me is like I, I know that Credit Suisse knows what happened. I know that people at the FCA in the UK know what happened. And none of them really seem to have much incentive to open up and go, well, let's have a real deep analysis of this and make sure it never happens again. 
it seems like for the most part, most most of the people involved feel like they want to, you know, move on and forget about it and hope nobody notices. Yeah, that seems to be the problem with a lot of these frauds. So, sorry, I just had another question if we step back. Um, I remember reading something about how potentially a lot of the contracts, I guess, uh, I'm not sure if it's good to specifically, but other companies, they would actually say, oh, we have this contract to supply a certain company with this amount of materials. But a lot of them were fraudulent, or not all of them, but some of them were fraudulent. Was that the... Did you find much of that in your research? Or yeah, so there's a there's another piece of this, right? So yeah, there's this sort of traditional supply chain finance, which is okay but not very profitable, right? So Lex works with Coca Cola and Boeing and so on, and that's sort of just not a profitable business. Um, then there's the sort of loans, some of which are to Sanjeev Gupta, some of them are to like Lex's neighbor or to the cousin of one of the managers of the business, and and so on, and they, those tend to be. You know, the Gupta ones are hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, but some of them are 10 million here, 20 million there. They go to kind of friends and family, and now that money's all disappeared. Um, then there's some other stuff, and some of this is Gupta, some of it, some of it's not. Uh, and it's what you're alluding to, which is that, you know, as I described supply chain finance earlier, it's about financing real transactions. So actual bits of business that have happened between two companies. Um what Lex and Sanjeev came up with was, what if we financed, uh, what if I provided you loans backed by transactions that might happen sometime in the future between you know companies we might work with, but maybe we're not even working with now? I mean, it was just kind of making up stuff. Um, and and they and they use this to you know provide loans, and so they take money from Credit Suisse's clients, and they say, okay, I want to lend Sanjeev another you know fifty million dollars. Uh, let's come up with $50 million worth of possible transactions that might happen sometime in the future against which we'll loan this money. And it wasn't just Gupta. There was also another company uh, they did this a lot with, which was a, a, a coal mining company in in, uh, in West Virginia called uh, Bluestone, which is owned by the governor of West Virginia, a really interesting guy named Jim Justice. Um, and they they loaned Bluestone about $850 million, a lot of it done this way with kind of future lex would call them future receivables which is basically made up transactions that may or may not happen at some point in the future yeah it's when you think about that it's just mind-blowing how how they got away with it yeah you know i I compare this to sort of other people i've talked to who've covered similar frauds i guess wirecard um you know rbs which maybe it wasn't fraud but obviously was poorly run and it just seems like there's from what i learned there's too much emphasis on this one leader or there's too much trust in this one leader and there's not enough control and at the same time from investors or you know from credit Suisse, there's obviously a lack of understanding about what they're actually investing in and what are the you know fallout that could occur that we've seen now so do you sort of see similarities there or yeah well i'll pick up on a couple of things one is um yeah, on the on the sort of complexity and lack of understanding. So some of the best investors I knew who I talked to for this, who didn't put money into Green Cell, uh, would say to me, well, look, you know, he was offering me kind of money market rates. So similar to what I'd get just putting my money in a in a you know deposit account, essentially. He was offering me a little bit better than that, 
But in order to get that, I was going to have to read 200 pages of documentation. And so that doesn't make any sense to me. It can't be possible that it's that complex to get something that's not really that much of a return. So yeah, I think complexity was like part of the design for Greensill. And you know, some people who were really smart saw through it and said, I'm not going to invest in that. And uh, but some others, you know, maybe could be Credit Suisse. Um like they liked that complexity and so, oh, well, this guy must be a genius because look how complex this thing is. Um, and then your your other point about um, kind of buying into the leader, I think is absolutely true here, right? So he was, he, he I, a lot of people told me he was really charismatic before I met him and there is a certain charisma about him, um, but it's, it's one that, you know, you either really bought into or you didn't. And for me, I didn't. But clearly, a lot of people did. He was certainly incredibly ambitious, worked really, really hard. He was sort of worked almost around the clock. Like if he was on one of his private jets, he'd be working on the private jets. And, you know, he worked very, very, very hard. And so, you know, that impresses a lot of people. Um, a lot of, he kept a lot of this really tight to his chest, right? Not the unprofitable business with Coca-Cola and Boeing and so on. That was what you know most of the thousand employees were working on. Little did they know they were working on a business that essentially was losing money. Lex himself, with maybe one or two others around him, they were the ones working on Bluestone, uh, you know, Gupta and the, the you know friends and family stuff. Uh, and that was held really close to Lex. You know, it was not not many people knew about that, and uh, I think you know that's because they bought into the idea that this guy is a visionary and he's going to change the world forever. Um, and it, you know, I think once you've bought into that, it's quite hard. Maybe there's a psychol. I'm not a psychologist, but I I guess there's probably like somebody out there could tell us. You know, it's probably quite hard once you've bought into an idea to be able to switch and go. Well, actually, I'm not sure about this anymore. Um, you know, I, I, certainly the the board members didn't help you know they were not really fully engaged um i know actually david cameron i'm told did used to ask a lot of questions but they weren't particularly insightful and sort of easily fended off by lex um but some of the others didn't even bother to ask questions one of them i'm told used to be strumming his guitar in the background uh of the board meeting so he probably wasn't all that engaged um but I think, you know, there's another element to it, actually, which is if you look through the board of, of Green Cell, it's it's an incredibly homogenous group of people. Um, they're, they're, you know, uh, like from the same, they're the same race, the same gender, the same class. A lot of them have worked in the same banks. There isn't there isn't much diversity there in any way, any shape or form at all. So the idea that, you know, once you once you're in this room, be quite you know, unusual once you've bought into it to sort of turn around and say, I've changed my mind. I think this is a big fraud Ponzi scheme or something like that, if that's what you thought. Um, so yeah, I think that leader thing is, is, is really interesting and how people buy into those people is, you know, it's probably, it's probably is a thread between Wirecard and Greensill and some of the other big uh, scandals. Yeah. I think you mentioned as well, how they were, a lot of them were paid quite a lot more than they'd be paid at other company. So that's I guess right. that's probably a red flag sometimes as well. It's like, why are yeah. they paying me so much? <laughs> that's right. They were paying really well. Greensill was renowned. Uh, again, the thousand employees, many of them who worked in you know the Northwest of England, they'd probably tell us that they weren't paid that well. But uh, the guys at the top were paid exceptionally well. 
you know, much more than they would have been in some of their other jobs. You know, that's another question that comes up quite often is like, why would David Cameron have joined this company? And, um, you know, that's for him to answer, I guess. But I can certainly say it offered like jackpot money. You know, if, if it had all paid off, he got paid really well, even though it collapsed, right? So he took out, I think the BBC said 7 million pounds. I wouldn't, that, I wouldn't argue with that number. Um, I think it could have been more. Uh, if it had, if it had all worked out and they they'd got an IPO off the ground, I think he was going to make many multiples of that. Um, so you know that's one reason why he might have joined. Uh, I think there were other things for Cameron. I think it was like a fintech, which was cooler than going to work for a traditional bank and so on. Um, other people have said to me that maybe he couldn't get a job in a traditional bank because of his premiership. You know, it ended with Brexit, and so that wasn't uh, wasn't a great way for that to end uh, for him, given that he'd stood against it. Um, yeah, so I think you're right. The money certainly. Lex was really good at understanding what motivated different people, whether that was money or whether it was flights on his jet or tickets to a garden party at Buckingham Palace or whatever it was. He was really good at understanding that, I think. Yeah, which is a fascinating thing. So, Duncan, thank you so much for your time. I guess uh, my last question is, what is one message that you'd like people to take away from the book as well as our interview? Yeah, you know, there's one thing that's sort of come to me over and over again, and it's that these sort of white-collar scandals it's it's easy to think that there aren't any victims and you know uh this is all the billions and millions that we numbers that we throw around suggest you know what's this got to do with ordinary people but in fact there are victims of this stuff right there are there are a thousand employees as i've mentioned a couple of times they're all without jobs now they thought they were working for a hot new company and they they weren't they've lost their jobs big parts of their career gone and there are investors in those credit suisse funds many of whom are sort of fairly ordinary people you know they're not uh, multi-billionaires they're just ordinary people who happen to have a bit of money and they put it into a fund and and lost it and so you know there are real real victims here and and you know i think it's sort of important that they don't get forgotten yeah, I think that's an important message. So, Duncan, thanks again. Um, so, if anyone wanted to buy the book or maybe read more about the work you're doing now, where would the best places for that be? Uh, all the usual online and uh, you know uh, bricks and mortar retailers. It's uh, the the hardback will be out in the US in a couple of weeks as well. So, um, yeah, it's been doing quite well so far. So that's that's good. Thanks yeah. a lot. Then. <laughs> no, I definitely enjoyed it. I think it's something that. It's crazy to think there's there's always these books about all these frauds and unfortunately it just keeps happening. So there's more books, but I think this is a, yeah, it's a really interesting message. And as you said, there's so much involved in it and it's quite interesting. So Duncan, thanks again. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released. I hope you're leaving with some great value about investing, trading and finance. See you on the next show.